Well, good morning. My name's not Ken. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about where we're at. It's kind of been a strange week for me. And uh, what I anticipated for the next couple weeks on Sunday mornings is, is not what I'm seeing anymore for the next couple weeks. And so uh, where we're going to go is we're going to do a series on the church called Mother Kirk. And Kirk is the Scottish word for church. It's kind of the only English-speaking country where they have a different word for church than church. Uh, and so we're going to do this series called Mother Kirk. And here's a little bit of why. Um, there's times kind of where you're going through your life and you're just walking along and then all of a sudden you start getting hijacked uh, by a, a topic. Everywhere you turn, you seem to run into it. And so this last week, it was emails and it was conversations with family and conversations with friends and little coincidental things and quotes that would catch my eye and and even this skit kind of got me realizing uh, that church is something we just need to talk about. And it was something I used to do a lot of talking about because when I first went to seminary, uh, myself and, and a group of friends, uh, I, was, I started off as a, well, the first, when I went there, it was for um, philosophy. And philosophers are notorious for being uh, not really submissive to anything or not really a part of anything. <laughs> And so they're all kind of going this philosophy route, and they're my friends, and we're all Christians, and I'm going to go plant a church. But we always started talking about church, and the feeling was this. If we just left the church, we could run so much faster. And so it kind of reminds me of the movie Poseidon that came out like a year, year and a half ago. And the actor, kind of the hero of of that movie, Josh Lucas, um, basically is in this cruise ship and the ship gets hit by a rogue wave, flips upside down, and it's kind of floating and bobbing along. And so far, you know, the water hasn't come in. It's kind of airtight, but it's chaos. And he's going to try and make his way to the, the bottom of the ship that's now on the top and get out where the propellers are. And so that's where he's heading. But this mom with a, a single mom with a boy and kind of some other people begin to grab onto him. And he tries real hard to distance himself from those people. Because he knows that if he takes those people with him, they're only going to slow him down. And so he's just trying to get away from them, doesn't want to bring them with. And of course, they end up coming with him, and he begins to kind of soften from this uh, professional gambler to someone who actually cares for these people he's trying to help uh, escape with him. And that was the emotion that myself, that I and my friends went through was, you know, if we go with the church, that uh, messy group of people, it's going to slow us down. And so why don't we just kind of leave that and just strike out on our own and be able to run really fast. And so I wrestled and I thought and I read and I prayed and I came to the conviction that the church, the local church, those, those messy people that are hard to run fast with, that that's God's plan A for this world. The local church is the hope for the world. And what I realized is if I run really fast to reach people, what am I reaching them to do? I'm reaching them to put them back into the local church, whether it's in Africa or South America or Wisconsin or, you know, you, you reach people and the idea is then to get them into a family. And so how can I work so hard and run so fast to value the local church when I don't really value the local church? And so I began to realize the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. And so when I became a college pastor and started dealing with my generation and, and my whole generation is so anti-everything. Anything messy, it's just uh, like in the skit, I'm going to find 
and focus on all sorts of different things and pretty soon just get bored with it and move on that I began to have to talk about church a lot. And I was passionate about talking about the church. And so it's been a while since I've just talked about the church. Um, And this week I felt like God was saying, come back to it. And so what we're going to do is this series called Mother Kirk. And Mother Kirk comes from, is a phrase that C.S. Lewis used uh, in his allegory, The Pilgrim's Regress. And so he took the, the Scottish word church, Kirk, and said Mother Kirk. And that was kind of the the representative figure for the church in that book. And so on the front of your notes page, um, you'll see a quote from that book. And by the way, uh, there's a lot of things to take notes on today. It's kind of a different Sunday than normal, and you might see that just when you look at the outline. So if you would like a pen or one of these little book lights, just raise your hand, and they're going to get those to you so that you can follow along if you choose to do that. So real quickly, here's the next couple weeks, what they look like. We're going to open this series today. Next Sunday, Jake Hendricks is going to be speaking, who's a director up at Camp Tadmore. And I used to work with him in California and is one of the most dynamic um, speakers that I've ever been around. So I'm excited just to have him next week. Uh, The following week, we'll pick up this series again. Uh, And then the week after that is Art Sunday. And we've got a piece of this that's going to fit with the Art Sunday And then we'll finish this series the week after Art Sunday, so the end of May. And then what we're going to do is is transition the very uh, next week after that into a study on the book of James. So just a little bit to orient you with where we're at and where we're going, um, and I'm kind of excited about it. So let's dive right in and um, just start uh, with this series on the church. And this is going to be a little different because what I did this week is email a lot of friends and family and say, uh, give me the questions that you and people you know are asking about the church and give me the frustrations or the emotions that they've got. Like what, what is really out there, kind of the, the hanging questions. And so what we're going to do for this whole series is I've built it around those questions. So these are the questions that you or people like you or your friends or your family would be asking And we're going to do this whole series, in some sense, as an answer to those questions. So it's kind of a different format. So I'm looking forward to it. Here we go. Um, The first question that I think is very appropriate, what is the church? What is the church? If we don't know what it is, it's pretty hard to talk about it. And so two prevailing misconceptions of what the church are. These are two of the biggest things out there that I think prevent us or get in our way from being able to talk intelligibly about the local church. Misconception number one, the church is the invisible body of believers. The church is the invisible body of believers. And the idea here is um, I'm a part of the body like a cell, a living cell is to a body. So there's this invisible, huge, kind of universal body, and I'm a part of that like a cell would be to this part of the body, okay? Um, That's the first misconception. Second one, we're going to talk about these more at length. Second one is this, the purpose of going to church is so that I can be taught and worship. The purpose to go to church, kind of the prevailing view out there is you go to hear a sermon, you go to worship. That's pretty much it. That's the purpose And therefore, it's not necessary to go to church if I'm already being taught uh, or if I can find other ways to worship or be able to express um, worship, join in worship with others. So if those needs are being met elsewhere, 
And that's why it's really hard for, for kids in Christian colleges to go to church. Because they have like chapel and they probably have better worship going at their school than, than any of the local churches around. And so it's kind of like, that's already being met in my life. Why would I go to a church? Because the misconception again is, the purpose is for that, to teach and worship. And consequently, because I think these two misconceptions, our generation is the most absent arm of the church. We can't be found. We're not there. It's a slice. It's our generation, my generation at least, uh, is just gone from the church. So statistically, here's a real interesting thing. Roughly, you can break it out to where 70% of 70-year-olds go to church, 60% of 60-year-olds go to church, 50% of 50-year-olds, 40% of 40-year-olds, 30% of 30-year-olds, and 20% of 20-year-olds. Roughly, shading a little bit, that's how it breaks down. When you get to the teen years, the kids of those that are in their 40s and 50s, it jumps back up because, again, they're going with their family. But as soon as kids gra- uh, graduate high school, students graduate high school and go to college, um, they're just not there. They don't go. And so I think these misconceptions fuel that, and so we're absent from the church. And so let's go back and try and get in touch with what the church really is. So the church defined, the church is visible and invisible. Okay, the, the language invisible came about during the Reformation by Zwingli out of Switzerland who brought in this idea of the invisible church and he did it for this reason. Because up until that time you had the universal Catholic church. And you even had the Apostles' Creed that kind of in a different sense but used the word Catholic said, you know, we're affirming our membership in this Catholic church, kind of this universal church. Meaning that if I go to... Um, the East Coast, if I go to Europe, the believers there, we're, we're part of the same larger body. Does that make sense? And so Zwingli, as a part of the Reformation, is trying to say, what language can we use that doesn't all of a sudden make it seem like the Catholic Church is that big body? And so he said there's the, the invisible body. All those that are called by, by Christ's name, all the Christians, make up this invisible larger body. Okay, And he came up with that language for that specific reason, and it's, it's good language, but the church is visible and invisible. Now, when we focus too much on the invisible side, what we kind of begin to do is, is uh, go down an extreme on a mystical route, where really it, I'm a part of this big nebulous thing, but what really matters is me and God, and that's it. Our mystical union, our mystical connection is really all that matters. And that's nothing new. I mean, it's huge in our generation, but it's nothing new. Gnosticism back in the first couple centuries um, was very mystical. And the whole word Gnostic comes from this. It was um, the Greek Gnosis with a G. Gnosis meant knowledge. And they believed they they got special knowledge from God that he divinely revealed, kind of spoke in during their prayer life, special knowledge that nobody else had. And it wasn't in the scriptures, it wasn't anywhere. They had this divine, special knowledge. And so they didn't need any of the visible aspects of the church. They just, they had this mystical connection with God. And so listen to uh, a definition of Gnosticism here. It says this, according to Gnosticism, the self alone, meditating on heavenly things, is just as sacred as the public worship of God through word and sacrament. Why should one have to go to church when one can just as easily worship him in private experience and meditation? Now that's, 
That sounds like you could say it to any number of things today, doesn't it? And it's nothing new in the church. The church has always had people that kind of tried to get out of the visible representations of the church. And in some sense, there was a spiritual elitism in that thinking, I'm just going to go have this mystical relationship with God. It's me and God go team and I don't need anybody else. And I'm going to run a lot faster that way. So it's nothing new. So what does the Bible mean when it says church? If we're trying to really get after this idea of visible and invisible, what does the word church mean when we're talking about it? Now in the New Testament, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. And so ecclesiastical, things that have to do with church, like borrow that root. So ekklesia is the word for church, and it appears 114 times in the New Testament. And 90 of those times refer directly to a specific, visible, local church or assembly. So of the 114 times it's used, 90 refer specifically to the visible church, the local church. Here's some things from the Dictionary of Paul and his letters, which is kind of a mainstream standard scholarly work um, analyzing a lot of the topics in the New Testament, the latter New Testament. It's a three-volume work. There's the Dictionary of Paul and the Gospels, and then, I mean, Jesus and the Gospels, and then Paul and his letters. But here's what it says about ecclesia. It comes from the Old Greek in which it meant an assembly which was regarded as existing only when actually assembled. In other words, you, you put it together and you can draw a circle around it. That is ecclesia kind of a thing. That's where the word came from. It doesn't lend itself at all to this kind of idea of invisible things. Ecclesia differed from the Greek word demos, which meant people, crowd, or populace. If the New Testament was trying to talk about an invisible body of believers, the invisible church, there's a different word that they would have taken as the primary technical word for church, and it wouldn't have been ecclesia. Ecclesia never renders the Hebrew word eda, which means people as a national unit or whole. Okay, so in the Septuagint, the Bible that was circulating in Jesus' time, which was written in all Greek, it never synonyms for this, this Hebrew word of the whole kind of picture, the whole deal. It always meant a group that you could draw a circle around that was actually assembled. Josephus who kind of was the historian of the early church in the day of Constantine, used the word ecclesia 48 times, always referring to an official gathering of the church people. So he always used it of the local church. So the church is visible and invisible, but the emphasis is on the visibility of it. So here's some quotes from Robert Sosi. Uh, his book, The Church and God's Program, and Dr. Sosi was one of my professors in seminary, and he was in his 70s, and he'd been doing this for 40 years, and he's kind of this preeminent kind of dean of the school guy that was mentoring all the other seminary professors, and uh, an amazing guy. This was his specialty, and here's what he says in his book, a couple different quotes. As for membership in an invisible church, Without fellowship with any local assembly, this concept is never contemplated in the New Testament. The universal church was the universal fellowship of believers who met visibly in local assemblies. He goes on later, each individual assembly is the church in that place. The local assembly is the the one body of Christ particularized in a certain locality. So the idea is this, 
We can't picture the body of Christ and our relation to it as, as cells in a body. Okay? Uh, the body isn't this universal, invisible thing, and I'm just like a tiny little cell in it. The body of Christ is the church at that location. So Westside is a body of Christ. And somebody that goes to Westside is an arm or an eye or a foot. So when Paul starts really playing out this metaphor of the body um, being like the church, he says the eye shouldn't look down on the foot and think it's more noble. Everything has its place. Everything um, is important. And what he was talking about is there's certain people that are like the eyes of that body. And there's certain people that are like the foot of that body. They're not like cells in it. The people that go to that church are parts of that body, members of that body. So Antioch is the church. We are a body of Christ. And you're not just a cell in this body. You're an arm or a hand or a foot or a leg uh, or an eye or a neck, you know, whatever. Okay? So it's not cells and then parts. It's parts then the body. So the local church equals the body of Christ. We got to get this into our heads because our generation's involvement with the church hinges on us understanding what God's plan is. And if we don't understand what God's plan is, it's pretty easy for us just to make it up as we go along and to choose whether or not church fits into that picture or that program. But the local church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says this, now you, and the word humes there, the Greek word for you, specifically refers back to the Corinthian group, that church. You, the Corinthian church, okay? Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You, the Corinthians, you, Antioch, are the body of Christ. And if you're here, you're a part in that body. And if you're not here, guess what? We're going to talk about this later. There's a part missing from the body. All right, so what's the difference between simply a meeting of believers in the church? Because this is kind of where it would go um, when I was doing a college ministries and I would talk about church. And people would say, okay, okay, church is important. So, but I've got this group of friends. We meet in a home. Uh, I've got a, a bunch of us, you know, that we're going to kind of, we are the church, you know, why do we need the institutional thing? Because we're already gathering together. And so here's three marks from the Reformation of what a church is, kind of defining marks. And the first one is this, the word rightly preached, the sacraments rightly administered, but just the sacraments, and then third, church discipline. Now, I would add inclusive to that. Because what I've learned is if you get a bunch of friends together and they think they're doing church kind of by hanging out, here's the first thing I'm going to be able to point out is um, you're not going to let just any old buddy join that. Okay, You might bring somebody else in, but it's only because they're cool or they're fun or they fit with that little group. But a guy off the street that you don't know, you're not going to be too excited about him walking into that house and saying, I'm going to be a part of your quote-unquote church. You don't really go looking for those guys. You're kind of building it around an affinity group. Does that make sense? And God created friendship. It's a good thing. But, it, but he also created church, and it's a different thing. 
And so the first mark of a church is that it's inclusive. In the Old Testament, God's people were always supposed to be inclusive, that non-Hebrews and non-Jews were always supposed to be able to join that community. It's always open, and, and God has always drawn people into it. And when we just meet with a little affinity group, it shuts down and puts walls up, and it's no longer open to who, whoever would come. And that's not the way Jesus was, because remember how Jesus did it? Anybody could come, especially the little children. And that's the second part. When you meet with an affinity group, you cut off the generation above and below you. The little kids need to see you there, and you need to see the little kids. Why? Well, one of the reasons is they're the definition of faith. Jesus says, you want to know what faith is? Look at the little kids. So in some sense, we learn from the little kids. In some sense, the little kids look up to us, and they learn from us. And so we need the generation below us. Plus, uh, there's families with like three girls that are tired. <laughs> and they need people that are going to help them with those kids. Um, Mary, Joy, Esther, and Sarah. Uh, the second thing is we need people above us. And believe it or not, uh, even though the generations above you dress differently than you do, um, and everything else, they've got wisdom. They've got wisdom. They just plain do, okay? And we need that. It's a tempering effect. It, it brings realism. And if some, somehow those two generations get separated, the older generations will get really disillusioned. And so they've got all this wisdom, um, but they don't have the younger generations with the energy to work with. And so their wisdom kind of becomes useless, there's no one that can put that wisdom, that knowledge into action. And so having it really isn't fun anymore. And so those older generations lose out. So the marks of the church, I would just add an inclusivity. And you're going to realize really quick that an affinity group, a bunch of left arms hanging out together because, boy, heck, we all get along and we all like the same things, is not a body. The body's inclusive and it's diverse. Um, and here's, here's the other thing. Turn to Matthew 18. If... Uh, if you would, this is the other thing that used to get thrown at me all the time. You know, I'm just, I've got my little small group of friends and we're, we are the church. Well, what do you mean you are the church? Well, the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. You ever heard that? Okay. So here's where that comes from. It comes from Matthew 18. The only passage in the gospels about discipline in the church Okay, listen to the whole thing. And remember, the Greek texts here don't have paragraph breaks. We put those in ourselves. But in verse 15 of chapter 18, it says this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now, we could stop right there and do a whole series about how the church would be a better place if we just did this. We go to people directly and resolve things and go, oh, wow, I, I totally misunderstood what was going on there. It's a good thing I didn't go um, slander you all over my space, you know. Um, we don't do this anymore. We don't deal with things directly. We get with our little groups of friends and we, we slam the church. And we criticize and we vent and we fuel it. And it goes round and round. And we're bringing our, our one side of the story to the table or our, our one perspective or whatever it is without bringing in something to counterbalance it. We don't go talk to other people. And we need to do more of that. But let's just keep going. So if your brother, the guy you go talk to, if he listens to you, 
You have won your brother over and there's unity. And remember, the Bible's all about unity. Jesus' last prayer on earth was all about unity. And the way to get it is to talk with people directly, one-on-one. And if he listens, you've won him over. But if he will not listen, you take one or two others along so that, quote, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, what do you think it's quoting? It's quoting the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament legal system, you couldn't just come in and, and say, man, uh, I don't like Ian Hayworth. And so I'm going to go you know, to the local authorities and I'm going to tell them all sorts of things about Ian and they're just going to go put Ian in the stockade. you know, um, Put him in one of those little things where your head sticks out and your hands stick out, which would be actually pretty funny. Um, it's not fair. You know, a just society is not going to let that happen, right? And so there was rules that God gave to his people that says you have to have witnesses. It has to be established by two or three. It can't just be one person's word against another. And, and so this is what Jesus is quoting back to and saying, this is the driving principle. And so he quotes it and he says, two or three witnesses, and then it goes on. And if that brother refuses to listen to them, then you go to the next thing. You don't, you don't hit the nuclear button right off the bat. You take it in stages. So the next thing is you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So, so heaven is going with you as you try to bring together unity. And if something is poisonous in the body, cancerous, and it's going to destroy it, heaven's going to go with you and trying to weed that out. Because that's what God's about. You look to the Old Testament, and God is in the middle of trying to bring his community together. And then when somebody sins and it's going to infect the whole community, he disciplines, like not even that guy, but his family and his clan and, and anyone that's ever even looked at him. You know, I, like God takes the poison very seriously. And so God has always been about doing this. And he's now saying to the church, I'm going to be with you. Jesus said, I'm going to be with you in this job of keeping it united. And if you bring it together, I'm there. If you have to send something out, I'm there. Now listen to what he says. Again, he's repeating himself. What's he repeating? He's repeating the rule of everything has to be established by two or three witnesses. Again, I'll tell you that this principle. It's this, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So as someone sins, and this is how you deal with it, the culmination is, look, if you get together, and those of you that are really concerned about godly things and about unity, and you agree and you ask God for help, he's going to be in there helping you, and I'll be with you. Because some of this discipline stuff is pretty tough stuff. It's tough stuff. And so he's encouraging his disciples, saying, I'm going to go with you because every time in Scripture, God or Jesus promises his presence, it's right after he's told him to do something very difficult. Moses, you know, go do this. Guess what? I'll be with you. Joshua, go take over the land. Don't be afraid. Why would Joshua be afraid? Because what God just told him, like we gloss over it. Oh, go take over the land. Well, we already know that he wins. So it's like, oh, that's not too hard. You know, but Joshua's sitting there like, you know, (laughs) Uh, how, what, am I going to die? I mean, this is scary stuff. And God says, it's okay, I'm going to go with you. So Jesus is just giving some strong words and he says, you know what, I'm going to go with you. 
okay? Here's the thing. God's already with me if, I, if I'm a believer. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit comes and resides with us. So that in the Old Testament, the Holy, the Holy Spirit resided in the middle of the community in the temple because sin wasn't yet taken care of. But in the New Testament, because sin is taken care of, the Holy Spirit can actually reside with each individual believer. I, I've got God with me. I don't need another person or two other people for God to be with me. Does that make sense? So the idea that if two or three of us gather together and we're going to kind of call ourselves a little church, and guess what? We're going to stamp it with authority because God's, God was already there when, before you'd met us two or three. He's already with you. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to be with you in a unique and special way as you administer this local church idea like, like parents would work their family and deal with difficult things as they come up. Because where two or three are gathered, you can believe I'm going to be there. Because the values are going to be right. And it's not just going to be Ken trying to put um, Ian Hayworth in, in, you know, whatever. Anyways, we're killing that one. Okay, let's move on. Um, before we do that, here's just what you've got to get from that whole little dialogue. The church, like her or not, whether she's messy or not, is the body of Christ. And it is what you are called to. And there really is no way to create a second paradigm that says, you know, God's plan A is nice and all, but here's this new uh, way of doing things. And then we can move faster and, and, and whatever and, and put stamps of authority on it. You can do whatever you want, but there's no way to get around that God has called you to local community. It'd be like saying this, um, harping on the invisible church and saying that's what it's all about. It'd be like saying, I don't need a family because I'm a part of humanity. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? I mean, I don't need a family. I don't need this local community. I don't need this body. I don't need the structure. I don't need the older generations and the younger generations and the annoying sibling and the family politics because... I'm a member of humanity. <laughs> and you, brother or sister, as a Christian, yes, you are a member of humanity. But you, you need a family too. God has called you to have a family. Next question that we're going to tackle here. Why do so many people have problems with the church nowadays? Why is it a mess? Okay, that's really a question. I mean, a lot... Everybody has an opinion on the church. And unless you're strange and you just got saved or you just started coming to Antioch and you're in this little honeymoon period, you know, though, you guys are the only ones that like the church. You know, people that aren't in the church don't like the church. And people that have been in church for a while don't like the church. You little slice are the only ones that really like the church. Everyone else thinks it's a ridiculous mess. And, and I'm kind of okay with that. I've just adopted the idea that um, a church, and this is part of the answer to this, the church is just people. And the messier people get, the messier the church gets, right? So the prettier the church is, well, it's just the prettier the people are. And I realize I'm pretty goofy, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big mess, and so I want a church that's really messy so I can feel at home. And you guys are goofy too, and if we all just admit it, um, we'll be okay, all right? But here's really the real reasons. Number one thing, Western culture. Why is the church a mess today? Western culture. 
in South Korea, interesting case study. Uh, in the late 1800s, missionaries go to South Korea, begin working, had so much, uh, so much of an effect on Korea that up until just a few years ago, 25% of South Korea was Christian. 25%. Can you imagine a whole nation like that are going to church and Christian? In the last couple years, they've had absolutely no ability, the church in South Korea, to reach the young people. Why? And so as all these sociologists go in there, because it's this fascinating case study, it's because South Korea moved from a pre-Western culture into being Western culture. And what happens when you've got Western culture there? The younger generations, here's some words, and, and this describes me too, okay? Um, and this is part of my messiness. It's, we're irreverent. We don't submit to authority. We're bored. We're over-idealistic, which means we want to change the world, but we want to wake up tomorrow and somehow the government showed up at our doorstep and has given us a million dollars and say, we want you to head all the humanitarian efforts and do all the interviews for all the local... You know, it's like we want to change the world, but it's like it's not through hard work. It's just handed to you, Okay. So we're, we're kind of over-idealistic and impatient all at the same time. And we're hypercritical. We're armchair quarterbacks about all of life. Because we're so passive, everything happens in front of us on a screen. Everything happens in front of us as we watch it. And we, we armchair quarterback it and find all the faults. And never do we enter in and participate. Never do we become a part of what's going on to where the criticism stops and we're actually working. We just analyze and scrutinize all of life. And so the church, being a representation of people, is really easy for us to pick on. And so it's so funny to watch as the younger generations in Korea become like my generation in America, that of course they don't go to the church either. And the problem isn't the church, the problem is my generation. The problem is me. I'm the problem. My character, my values, my, my work ethic or non-work, that's the real issue the church is dealing with. The church is struggling with my generation rather than the other way around. And my generation thinks that they're struggling with the church. And we've got it backwards. So Western culture. The other thing here is um, the dismantling of boundaries. It was pretty easy when you lived in a town and you didn't have cars and the next town is 80 miles away, and it's a small town, and church is right at the middle of the, the town with the steeple. And the church is where you go for community. Church is where you go for education. Church is where you go for um, serving and getting involved. Church is where you go for everything. It's the hub of community. Does that make sense? With the, dismant, the globalization of everything and internet and mass communication, you can go uh, on on iTunes and hear better sermons than, than in half the churches in America. And you just go find the best of the best. Whatever you want. You can go on MySpace and get a semblance of community. I don't think it's real community, but you get a semblance of community. You can get involved in any number of things like in terms of serving and doing that kind of thing. And communities have gotten bigger and work hours are longer and sleep is less. And what it is is it's like this. If you have one of those little kiddie pools and you fill it with like a foot of water, okay? It's this deep and it's this contained. If you take the same amount of water, and if you're the water, and all of a sudden you put it in a holding tank that's like 100 feet in diameter, what happens? It just spreads out and gets paper thin. 
and what is going on in society, what's going on in your life and what's going on in my life is there's just so much available and so much around us that where we used to be able to put up boundaries and kind of contain our life and it was good and it was under control and we knew what was what, we weren't frantic, um, those boundaries have now just moved so far out and we just diffuse across it and we're paper thin. And all that simply means is this, where before it was easy just to be a part of church, now we have to make that happen. Church used to just be your only community option. Now we have to create the options within church. And instead of going here for this, there for this, there for this, there for this, there for this, and nothing dovetails, we got to kind of put all of it and, you know, put all your, I don't know who came up with, I don't even know what put all your apples in one basket means, but it seems like it fits. Um, you kind of got to do that. Just put it all in one deal. And, and when I was a college pastor, I used to tell kids at Biola, I was like, Find a local church to do a missions project with. You know, because they had all these missions projects through the school. And I even went to the school administrator and I said, what are you doing? Said, You're teaching all these kids to like love the local church and they're supposed to be being prepared for ministry to go be a part of the local church. But then you're running all these, these missions programs out of the school. And so they just go do that and nobody ever gets involved in the church. So you've got these churches with money or resources or passion to do missions projects, and you don't have any college kids that have the time or the energy to do them. And you've got all these college kids going and doing it on their own, and when they come back, there's no one to tell the stories to, no little kids to model it to. And that's how you, you, you begin to dovetail things. It's like, I'm going to do children's ministries through this church and missions through this church and give money through this church, and I'm going to, you know, I was dealing with someone in my family that's saying, I want to help the little kids in Africa. I'm saying, great, you can do that through our church. And that way your, your stuff is all in one little barrel and, and pretty soon you'll be able to go to Africa and see the kids you're sponsoring through our church. And you'll build this, this dynamic com- community relationship with one nice church instead of being so spread thin that nothing has anything to do with the next or the next. And you just get so spread out that you just, you blow a gasket. And so why is the church a mess? Part of it is just the fallout from the dismantling of boundaries. And it's a tough deal. And it leads to this idea of the invisible church. And so if we really realize that we've got to be a part of the visible church, the local body of Christ, we're going to begin to put our eggs in one basket. That's what it is, right? (laughs) Apples. I'm sorry. All right. There's a cliche. I should have avoided it anyways. All right. Um, when did the, here's the next question. When did the church's actions stop matching their talk? Why is the church not being the church? And I hear this a lot. Church is really screwed up in America. The American church is really messed up. It doesn't look like the biblical church, and it's, it's just a messy deal. Now, here's the real interesting thing about this. Subconsciously, uh, this becomes an easy out. So you get headphones from Best Buy and you don't like the headphones, what do you have to do? You have to find one little thing where you feel like it's a breach of contract. Oh, this shouldn't have been like that. And the minute you find one little thing that's like, this isn't what it was supposed to be or what it was marketed as being, this one little problem, there's a breach of contract there, I can go back to Best Buy and I know if I argue with their sales manager long enough, um, they'll take those headphones back. You know, so you're frustrated, you've got buyers like regret, remorse, and all oh, these headphones, they stink. And sooner or later, oh, but this is wrong. So now I can take it back. 
Okay? And we're doing that with the church. We find something wrong with it, and now there's a breach of contract, and so I can get out of it. Well, the church, it's not what it was supposed to be. It's not what it was in the New Testament. And so, you know, now I can walk away from it because I'm not walking away from what God had in mind. I'm walking away from the American church. Does that make sense? And it's a faulty argument. So we're going to do a little philosophy lesson today because whenever you can bring philosophy in, you should. Um, so here's, here, in philosophy, this is what it's called. You take arguments and the phrase is putting it on the board. So what you're going to do is you're going to take an argument, a verbal argument, and you're going to break it down into its logical form. And, and that means putting the premises on the board and the conclusion that's supposed to follow from it. So with this argument, it goes like this. Um, premise one. There we go. If the church now isn't like the early church, then we don't owe her anything. Make sense? Okay. Premise number two. The church now is messed up and the early church wasn't. So the conclusion that follows is we don't owe the church anything. Now, there's different types of problems you can have with a formal, logical argument. A common problem is the conclusion not following from the premises. So that would be like uh, pigs have ears, Socrates has ears, therefore Socrates is a pig. Okay, It's a famous little you know, bad argument in philosophy. And the premise one is right, pigs have ears. Premise two is right, Socrates has ears. Conclusion doesn't follow, though. Does that make sense? Okay. The problem with this one is a different kind of problem. It's that premise two is flawed. And, and it's flawed with about 20 different logical fallacies. Appeal to emotion, hasty generalization, uh, argument of shame. I mean, there's, uh, there's begging the quiet. It just goes on and on and on. It's just a very emotional premise. And here's the, the one I want to just point out, just from the point of hasty generalization. It fails the test of being correct, and therefore the conclusion is invalid. Premise two is not valid. The conclusion's invalid. So here's the first part of this. You can't generalize and say the American church. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation, and not a single word matches up. Even the little concluding remark of each letter is different. Why didn't he just write one letter to those churches? They were all in one ridiculously small geographical area. And the, the point is this. If Jesus came down, he would have a different letter for Antioch, a different letter for New Hope, a different letter for Oasis, a different letter for Westside, because we're all unique. And there's things he'd want to affirm or encourage. There's things he'd want to challenge. And each church is its own deal. And so we can't jump immediately to this level of saying, well, the American church, what American church? That's a generalization that can't stick. Second thing is this. Um, the people that are making this argument, and I was one of them, jump to Acts chapter 2 and take a, a couple-month slice of the church and make that normative. And so it's like, look, they're, they've got everything in common, and, and it's like this egalitarian society, and it's this utopian society, and it's all these things, and it's amazing. And so this church, or American churches, don't look like Acts chapter 2. And what we don't do is turn over a couple chapters and look at that same church that had everything in common, started playing favorites and being like, well, if you're a Grecian Jew... We're not going to give you, or widow, we're not going to give you any money. And, and they're like playing the same garbage politics that every church since the beginning of time has played. Does that make sense? That's that same Jerusalem church. 
And the first letter to the church at Corinth was prompted because there was incest in the church. I mean, crazy incest. And Paul even says, this, this is the kind of thing that ought not be happening. And then the second letter to Corinthians was prompted by a bunch of people saying like, you know what, um, I'm going to follow Ken and I'm better than you are. Um, you know, my pastor's bigger than you and he could beat you up. And the other guys are saying, well, we're following Kip and so what if Ken could beat him up, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but the second letter's prompted because they've totally missed the whole point. And the church at Athens, well, what church at Athens? Paul could barely even get anything going there. It was so ridiculous. And, and then what about the church at Antioch, which was a pretty sweet church. That's where we got our name. They really didn't do anything wrong. But see, what happened was that same Acts 2 Jerusalem church, you want to know what they did? They tried to ruin the church at Antioch. They sent up a bunch of men that were legalistic and went to these new Christians and baby Christians and said stuff like this, I know you drink microbrews on Saturday. You're not a real Christian. And you don't wear a suit and a tie to church. You're not a real Christian. And I know that you read uh, Harry Potter books. And a real Christian wouldn't do that. And you see R-rated movies. And a real Christian wouldn't do that. And you have to change all of those things before I'll call you a real Christian. You have to become like this righteous, pharisaical, doing it by the letter of the law model, or forget it, deals off. And so that same Acts 2 church that's used as this wonderful example to pit everything against was trying to poison the churches that were really getting it. I mean, what the Spirit did at that church at Antioch was amazing. And they began to realize it's about love more than law. Grace trumps law. And so half, you got books of the New Testament that are written about this. The whole book of Galatians is Paul trying to pick up this mess and saying, wait a second, the Antioch church got it. People matter to God. And a microbrew on Saturday doesn't matter to God. Matter of fact, Timothy, go have a little wine. Okay? And, and you know, if they read a Harry Potter book, that's not that big of a deal. There's so many more important things. And you know what? If you've got pride in your heart or judgment in your heart against this person reading a Harry Potter book, you're worse than they are. Because that, that, that heart is worse than any book that someone's just reading for entertainment. And so Paul writes this whole book of Galatians saying that grace trumps law. And so premise number two is just flat wrong. Yeah, there's some messed up churches, and yeah, Antioch's got its flaws, and yeah, whatever. You show me any church, and, and sooner or later, we can pick it apart. Here's the point. You could do that with every single church in the New Testament, too. Because churches are nothing, that, no, nothing other than just a group of people, and people aren't perfect. And so since day one of the church age, the church has been a messy deal. And so premise two doesn't work. You can't pit the New Testament against the churches we've got today. Sure, we can learn things from them, but part of what we're learning is what not to do. And so the real issue is saying, how can we be the best church that we can be? But that conclusion that we don't owe the church anything and we're just going to pitch it, that only follows if premise two works and premise two doesn't work. 
All right, let's fly along here because um, I don't know why I said that. We've got plenty of time. Here's the idea, though. We don't want to trade a bad situation for a worse one. Churches aren't perfect, okay? But if you walk away from it, you're just making it worse. We don't want to trade a bad situation for a worse one. So here's the, the last question to address. What do you think is the biggest issue in the church? I got that question. And I rephrased it this way. What can we focus on to make a difference? What are the big issues? What's worth our time really honing in on? And the first one is, is this, the purposeless life. And you know what? Let's just let's do it. Let's fly into this. Um, I was going to skip it, but let's fly into it. You know, The Purpose Driven Life is a great book. Um, here's the paradigm. It's all nice and tight and mathematical, and it all works out. And, uh, and this is how you should live. And what I have realized is, you know what? That, that's kind of half the story. Okay, and it works really well with the, the left brain people that need formulas and, and need the paradigm. But there's a lot of right brain creative types out there that are going like, okay, wait a second. Um, life is about more than just purposes or actions. There's this existential side to it, this feeling side. And how do I get that thing figured out? You know, and this purpose-driven idea sometimes clashes with that. It's like, if you just do this, then everything will be fine, and it just doesn't work like that. Life is kind of so much more chaotic and messy. But here's the real issue. You look back at Scripture, and some of the biggies that God spent most of his time working with and through, their life looked anything but purpose-driven. So, I mean, Moses, you know, here's your purpose. Lead, lead the Israelites to freedom. And he, like, fights this guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like the hero, and I'm fighting this guy, and, I, you know, he kills this guy. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. No, you're not. Forty years in the desert. So now he's like an 80-year-old man. Nobody even knows who he is. He's in hiding. He's in exile, and he's doing the job of a, a little boy. Um, he's being a shepherd. I mean, that sucks. There's nothing purpose-driven about that in his mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? David kills Goliath, becomes the, the champion of Israel. Saul's sending him out. He's, he's beaten up on everybody. People are singing songs about him. He's anointed as king, the next king of Israel. Everything's going great. It's purpose-driven. And pretty soon he has to run for his life from Saul. And it gets so bad that he goes into the enemy territory where the Philistines are and he has to start puking on himself and like letting it hang in his beard so that he can pretend to be insane so that they'll just leave him like a beggar on the street and not kill him. A man's man, guy kills Goliath, whoops up on everybody, anointed king. I mean, he can actually say, I am the rightful king. And here he's puking on himself, acting like he's insane. Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, all these great things have been promised to me, but I've got puke all over me. And what is going on? This is crazy. This isn't what I signed up for. I don't get it. God, what are you doing? Are you even there? And, and somehow we've got to begin a dialogue in church and amongst each other about this purposeless life. You know, it's just not all purpose-driven. It doesn't just all roll out the way you expect it will. It's not all mathematical. 
It's not all ordered and structured. And even when you're doing the right thing, sometimes the bottom will fall out. And one of the reasons we come together as church is so that we can look into the Bible and the Psalms and see that God knows this. And he, he puts language into the scriptures so that we can, we can feel this and have a connection with God's story. I'm not out of God's story. I'm right there with it with David and some of these Psalms and other things that are happening. So God, so that's one of the reasons we need church is the, the scriptures rightly taught. And another reason is we need encouragement from people that are further down the road that can tell us to hang in there. And younger people, because have you ever noticed that you're, there's motivation when you know people are expecting something out of you? There's motivation when people are watching you. And so sometimes when you feel like pitching the whole thing and just saying, forget it. I'm just going to just go live a worldly life. I can't do this anymore. If you know somebody's watching you, you'll hang on. So just by being in community, we hang on in those times. We encourage each other. So the thing to focus on out of this is biblical theology. Purpose-driven life is great and all, but there's a broader, wider biblical theology that brings in these, you got puke on yourself kind of seasons of life. And we need to hear those. We also need to focus on art. Because when I'm feeling really down, you give me advice, I'll, I might just, I'm, I mean, I really might just slap you, okay? That really angers me. But if you take me and, and play the right music, you know, or take me out to where I can just be in an artistic environment where I can just feel and emote and be, that's what I need. And so the focus, we need to focus on biblical theology and art. Art is huge. It's why the Psalms are poetry. Leadership, last thing here. I think my generation, a lot of us that are leaders are going to get to heaven and God's going to say, wow, when you were down there, church was really a mess, wasn't it? We're going to say, boy, was it ever and how. Yeah, I'm glad you know that, God. Yeah, it was tough for me to to have to see that. And God's going to say, okay, well, let me show you a picture. He's going to walk us over and show us a body, a picture of a body on the wall. He's going to say, that was the church in your generation. What's missing? And you're going to see that body on the wall, and it's going to be this body with no head. And you're going to be like, well, what gives? And God's going to say, you know what? I made you to be a leader. The reason the church in your generation was such a mess was because you didn't lead. And you were the part of the body that was supposed to help make every other part work. And you looked at it and said it's a mess and walked away and you didn't even realize you were the one that was supposed to bring order to it. And I think there's a lot of leaders when we get to heaven, we're gonna look at that and just say, oh my goodness, how did I miss that? I was expecting the non-leaders to make the church something well-led instead of getting in there and leading it well myself. How did I miss that? And we're going we're gonna to be, we would pay anything or do anything to go back and do it over. And what we really need in the church today is leaders. People that can motivate and inspire and influence. You know, and I could say that, here's just the, the two words or the word. So the focus there is empowerment. We've got to find leaders and empower them and give them a, some ownership and raise them up and say, we need you. Nobody can do what you can do. We need you to do that. And I could say the same thing about everyone in this room. 
There's going to be some artists that go to heaven, and they're going to, God's going to say, wow, the church was really heartless, and it didn't have any feeling when you were down there. And they're going to say, yeah, and it was so hard for me you know, to walk away from that, but I just couldn't be in it when it didn't feel right. And God's going to take you over to a picture of a body on the wall, and there's going to be a heart missing. And God's going to say, how did you expect non-artistic people, non-musicians, non-this, non- how did you expect them to help you feel well? I made you that way so you could help them feel well. And by walking away and thinking it was all about you, you missed the whole point of why I created you. And there's a lot of administrators that are going to go to heaven and God's going to say, it was chaos. And they're going to go, oh, you know, I mean, because administrators, you know, your personality type, you know. Um, And God's going to say, yeah, the left brain was missing from the church, you know, and you were supposed to be there. And so let's have the courage to change the church. I'm dead serious now. We've all been called to the local church. I don't care if it's Antioch or somewhere else in Ben, but you've been called to be a part of the body, not just to sell in some abstract, ethereal thing, but a part in a workable ecclesia that you can draw a circle around. And if you don't be who God created you to be, the church is going to lose out because there is no one else that can be who you are. And so we need all of you. So let's go ahead and, and close in prayer. We're going to take uh, the tithe in just a minute. And there's a thing to get involved, like volunteering. There's an information card where you can check boxes, and we'll try and call you and help you get involved. If you want to just dialogue about it, I'll commit to meet with anyone in this church and help you get plugged in. But if you want to communicate that, just fill that out on the card and put that in the offering bucket when it comes by in just a moment. But let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, as we go into this series on the church, Um, my true heart's prayer would be that we would come to see the beauty of your plan rather than ridicule like uh, bad examples of it. That we'd come to rest in your wisdom that you obviously knew what you were doing when you created the local church. And Father, give the leaders in this room the fire in their bellies to get involved and to lead. Because if leaders lead well, Others follow, and this whole thing could get turned around, God. And I just pray for the leaders right now. And they know who they are, and I just pray you'd fire them up for the local church as much as you do for their business or their entrepreneurial stuff or, or their projects or their hobbies. Just give them a passion for church. I pray that in Christ's name, amen.